0: Welcome to today's episode of The Square, a curious conversation with Bruce Mao. Today's conversation is a little bit different because it's actually a rebroadcast of Friday Forum Live, which Friday Forum is something that we do internally at Corgan uh, to discuss design and projects and a myriad of topics. Um, Thankfully, Bruce was okay with us rebroadcasting this, so I'm excited to share this talk with you. One little note for you to know, the talk you're going to see on the video version of this podcast is just kind of our initial question and answer time, but we opened it up to a live Q&A that was an additional 30 minutes of content. If you want to hear that, make sure you check out the audio version of this podcast. Thanks so much and enjoy. Well, welcome to this special edition of Forum Live. Corey and I are super excited to be hosting this conversation with Bruce Mao. I'm Brandon Carmichael, Corey Deere. And we're excited to be picking Bruce's brain a little bit and talking about his new book, MC24. And uh, so Bruce, why don't you go ahead and kind of explain a little bit about who Bruce is? Yeah, so Bruce, we're really excited to
1: have you here because of two things. It's your diversity and experience and also professional collaborations that you've had along the way. So you've set out to solve so many problems, unique and diverse. So let's just talk about a few here for the rest of us at Corrigan. So you've designed 260 books, authored eight, started a school for design and entrepreneurship, collaborated on a thousand year plan for the urban design of Mecca, and imagined the future of the library. There were so many other notable collaborations, but let's just talk about a few of them. Frank Gehry, Disney Imagineering, MoMA, the Danish Architecture Center, and you've also worked with Rome Cool House. But let's not forget, the most important <laughs> was working with Corgan on the Freeman Headquarters Project. The pinnacle
0: of your career, Bruce. Yes. <laughs> so thank you for being with us. So let's just start with a really basic one, which is probably a really complex question to answer. Um, why are you a designer? Was there, a, was there something when you were a kid that drew you to design principles even before you knew what
2: they were? Um, you know, I grew up on a farm and, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of talk about design on the farm. Um, so it wasn't really a kind of big part of my experience until I got to my last year of high school. Um, and uh, I decided to go to art school and I met, um, I couldn't get in because um, I really <laughs> hadn't taken any art classes up till up then. Uh, so I, I couldn't, you know, I had nothing to apply to art college with. Um, and so they said, you know, it's they, they told me it's too late um, and I should uh, try something else. Uh, and I said, you know, I'm 16 <laughs> years old. It can't be too late. Um, and so they said, well, you could go to another town and there's a man there who runs a program called special art. Um, and if you if he takes you uh, into the program, you stay an extra year in high school and you just do art classes. And I met this extraordinary man who was 65 years old. His name was Jack Smith. And I spent really one of the best years of my life. I just totally fell in love. And he taught me printing and typography and photography and sculpture. And I mean, it was, it was an incredible experience. Um, and I really fell in love with putting images and words together, uh, which turns out to be graphic design. Um, and I did get into college, uh, but I didn't, I didn't last very long. Uh, I was only there for about a year and a half, Uh, and I just had a really rough time, you know, I couldn't quite, um, you know, do what I was supposed to do. Um, And so I ended up kind of failing out, at least I thought so at the time. Uh, But but I had a, you know, I had a pretty amazing experience, you know, I think I realize now looking back that I actually did college in 18 months. Because it did the four things that I wanted out of college, which was, it blew my mind, it introduced me to a whole new language, I met a new tribe of people, and I got a job doing what I love, um, and um, and I was a designer suddenly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they, I went to a, I went to an interview. They said, you know, uh, we love your drawings, uh, and your paintings. Can you design things? Uh, and I said. I think so. You know, like it doesn't look too hard to <laughs> me. Um, and uh, and they said, well, come back in a month and show us what you've done. Um, and so I did that, and I started work as a designer. Um, and it's just been an absolutely extraordinary adventure, i got to say. The, you know, I, I consider myself one of the most f- fortunate designers of the last half century.
1: That's awesome, Bruce. Um, I was thinking about you know design as a big subject, and I know that's something that you speak about a lot in your book. Um, And we're going to talk in this conversation. We're going to range it from architecture to graphic design. It's going to be all over the place. But one of the questions we really wanted to ask you is a big one um, with a lot of perspective, really. So when you look around the world and you think about all the industries and what they're doing to approach the different problems that are happening in the contemporary world, including technology and, and everything that's really changing in the world today, is there one particular industry that you find is meeting these challenges in an incredibly agile way and really rising to the challenge of all these new changes
2: well I think that um, I mean if you think about the design industries as a mm-hmm. as a whole um, that is where the solutions are going to come from in other mm-hmm. words the only way out of here is by design and and when I think about design I I, you know, one of the things that I've worked hard you know, in the last 10 years to try to think this way is to liberate design from the visual. Mm-hmm. I mean, we still mostly think of design as a visual practice, but if you really think about how we actually shape our world, it goes much beyond what we see. Uh, so one of the principles is design the invisible. Uh, it's really thinking about design liberated from that limitation and we start to think about you know how we live how we work uh, the things that we do if you think that think about your life for a, you know for a minute you realize I live a designed life you know I'm I'm in the I'm in the world uh, that has been designed for me I'm interacting on design interfaces I'm uh, using design products I'm driving design, vehicles through a designed infrastructure. Uh, I'm living in an urban design. And, and so you realize that your life is a designed life and the quality of that design determines the quality of your life. Right. And, and therefore that quality of design should be one of the most important questions that we ask. It should be an, it should not be exclusive to designers. It should be a question in the boardroom in the, in our government. It really, we should be really thinking about how are we designing our way of life.
1: So your argument is essentially that I think I remember you mentioning that you look around the world and it becomes very difficult to see something that isn't designed, that isn't impacted by man in some way, right? So it's really this argument there, there is no nature in a way, the nature that we sort of long for, think about you know, the mysterious nature. So your argument is simply saying that if it's going to be built, it should be designed, and it should be designed well to
2: influence our lives. I mean, what we saw in our research was that um, you know, where we fail to design, we design for failure. Right. And if you look around the world and you look at the places where we are not designing, we are destroying those ecologies and the only real hope that we have of a long-term presence on the planet is to design a way of being here that is part of the natural world. And if you think about the way we thought about it, we thought we were separate and above nature. And and you look at our urban design, our architectural design, it's mostly a kind of barrier to nature. It's it's a kind of line, you know, it's a it's a mark in the sand where, um, urban begins or, or our design begins and life is exterior. Uh, and I think the future of design ultimately, um, will put life at the center, not humans, and it will be, uh, synthetic and uh, synthetic, you know, a synthesis, uh, in other words. Uh, and I think that concept, that word, um, puts architectural practice in a very important place. And, and for me, one of the things I would, one of the reasons I worked so much with architects and, and urban designers is that, um, is that I realized that architecture has as a practice has synthesis at its core. I mean, you think about you know, the kind of work that, uh, that we did together, the kind of work that Corgan does every day. You're taking you know, hundreds, thousands of inputs of all kinds, And synthesizing it into one coherent whole, you know, one coherent experience that is beautiful, and that that problem is the problem of our time. You think about what we're trying to do. We're trying to integrate, synthesize the natural world and the physical world and the human world into one coherent, beautiful thing. And I think that that, there's so much talent and. Uh, and methodology in architecture uh, to really think about that. Yeah.
1: So, Bruce, this brings us in to an interesting, I think, part of the conversation here, imagining the synthesis and related to architecture and the natural world and and the built environment. So architects have a lot of conversation these days about artificial intelligence, and this is kind of this next emerging leg of technology that will influence, I think, our industry in a very big way. So... And you know, there's going to be this revealing of the incredible potential for both efficiency and also process in the iteration of design that's revealed through AI. So a lot of architecture uh, professionals see that as a threat, just to be honest. So how do you see architects su- successfully leveraging AI and not becoming irrelevant in the process?
2: It's a great question. I think it's a question for all of us because, um, you know, it's clear that anything that can be routine, anything that is repeatable, um, can be can be automated. Um, and for the most part, we want to automate those things. I mean, think about all the repetitive, mindless work that has to happen. Uh, that can all be made, uh, you know, that can all be automated. And um, the challenge, of course, is that that force of automation uh, is unstoppable, and it will it will gobble up things that we, you know, we might not, not be entirely happy about. But I, I think that the way that we have to think about it is to say um, it's, it's a partnership with the technology. It's not a, it's not a contest. Um, and it's interesting, you know, we were working with, um, with some of the folks out of uh, Amazon who are responsible for the, their automation and one of the things that was really striking to me was they said, you know, what we realized was that it wasn't about replacing people; it was about augmentation. So, what could a robot do working with a person um, that would be safer and healthier, and a better experience for that person, and also have a you know positive effect uh, business wise? And I think that that way of thinking is an important uh, is an important way to think about. You know how 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 um uh ai and, and automation can really be part of our future
1: so we don't have to attach it to a binary relationship where one one side wins and the other loses essentially
2: yeah i think that that we have to think about um how can we it's it's more synthesis and mm-hmm. what it does is it pushes our work to the thing that cannot be automated which is imagination I mean, you think about, you know, imagination, taste, subtlety, nuance, culture. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're a long, long way from being able to automate those kinds of things. And in the end, that's where the value is created. The value is not in doing, you know, 20,000 door t- details for a big project. Um, it's really, you know, uh, in the vision and the, and the cultural value of the project.
0: Right. Okay, so then in the pursuit of that, in, the, yeah. in, the, in trying to get the best both out of clients and out of projects, are there important questions that architects and designers aren't
2: asking themselves that they should be? I think the, the foundational concept is really challenging in the, in the sense that um, we still try to create a discrete object. So I think if you think about the, the project brief, the ideal brief is a single sentence. <laughs> like like if we can compress the complexity down to a single word, that's the kind of holy grail. And I think we need to be going the you know 180 degrees the opposite direction. We should be making the brief as complex, challenging, difficult, you know, as 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 difficult it, as it can be in terms of understanding the the object and its and its interaction with the ecology that sustains it. In other words, we we cannot we can no longer really support the idea of a discrete entity. So when we do a building, that building is not discrete. It's not a thing separated from the world. It's it's it fits into a whole range of ecosystems, technical and 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 natural. Uh, that are all part of making that thing work and live and and when it happens it affects all those ecosystems and I think a lot of the damage that we've done by design and it has you know and, and you think about what the real damage is that we're dealing with now uh, in, cl- in the climate um, it's driven by design we produce the things that then produce the impact and we were designing the thing as a discrete entity, not thinking about the, the, you know, the long term ramifications uh, when you multiply that thing by billions. Um, and that's the that's the reality of our world today. So I think it's absolutely critical that we understand the long term complex ecosystem impacts when we make our decisions when we use a certain material, when we use energy in a certain way, when we use light in a certain way, when we uh, build in a certain way in a certain configuration, all those things have implications long-term. And we just haven't had to think about it. We invented a concept called externalities. uh, And it's an accounting concept that basically allowed us to push everything we couldn't solve off off of our table. And then we just solved the thing that we could do. Um, and that era ha- has come to an end. I mean, it's just not plausible anymore.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the book and some of the processes that were in it. And the first thing that struck me with the book when we sat down a few weeks mm-hmm. ago and, and first started kind of doing the research is you cannot find this digitally. And <laughs> that is something that is intentional. And it's a, it, tell me about why it's important that the book is a physical object and not something that is just, just digitally living, living on a screen.
2: Well, for me, the, there's something that happens in a physical book that so far cannot be replicated. Um, there's, there's an aura and, uh, um, a kind of impact of an, of a real object in the world that has friction and weight, uh, that, that somehow can't be, uh, can't be described or produced in other ways. Now we can do lots of other wonderful things digitally. And we're exploring that. I mean, we're we're working on that. Uh, that'll be the kind of next phase of the project. But but um, but the reality of this book is, uh, it has an almost magical feeling when you uh, when you see it. Um, that you know because of the the material that we used, and and that yep. just isn't going to be. I mean all the images are are disappointing to me. <laughs> I mean, they're better than nothing, but they're not the real thing. Yeah.
0: So ideally the book is just an experience of real
2: things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a reality. And um, you know, I like to say that if we if we had gone the other direction in culture and invented the computer first, which probably would have never happened because you need the book to get to the computer. <laughs> um, but but let's say that we could invent the computer first. I think the next thing we would do is say, "Gosh, check this out! It's like a yes. physical carbon-based book." <laughs>
0: you know? yeah. And it's like, well, so along that line, one of the principles that caught our mm-hmm. our eye was the sketch. Hey, everybody, let's fail.
1: Yeah, so Bruce, I wanted to talk to you, to you about that one. That was actually my favorite, to be honest. So this was my favorite because. It's, it's something that I think a lot of older architects are telling the younger generation these days that, hey, you're very facile, you're very quick on the computer, but as you're attacking anything on the computer, are you keeping an eye out for what the big picture is, right? Could you talk a little bit about the process of sketching and, hey, everybody, let's fail, and what's the mindset behind that?
2: Well, the, the first kind of... Um, concept built into that is the notion of failure that, um, as designers, we need to get comfortable with the idea of failing and failing quickly and cheaply. So for me, sketching is not only a visual practice or, or let's say it's not only a kind of pen and paper practice. Mm -hmm. Uh, sketching is low resolution ideas, fast and cheap. So it's low resolution. So you're not, you don't have to be sure about what you're doing. You're just capturing a gesture, not the detail. Uh, it's, it's fast so you can do lots of them. Uh, when you're doing lots, it liberates you to have bad ones. It allows you yeah. to do things that are going to suck. And yeah. it's really important to the creative practice that you explore those things and you take them off the table that you can say, you know what, that, that sucks, I'm not doing that. Right. Right. Um, and right. that ability to actually produce low resolution ideas, fast and cheap is really important. And one of the dangers of the computer is that everything looks finished, right? You can make things look finished all, almost immediately. I mean, I've, yeah. I've been in so many presentations where we have to say, look, this is an idea. This is, <laughs> it's, it's not the yeah. thing. Uh, but yeah. it looks like the thing, and people lose their ability to actually see the idea. And I think uh, that's why for me sketching is such an important uh, part of the culture of design. And if you think about the kind of failure that we've all experienced, we've been trained not to fail. You know, uh, we, we've been trained to, to, um, to do the right thing and to get the grade Properly and to, you know, like to, to actually behave yeah. properly and that failure is always bad and failure is like, we feel the sting of failure and we've all yeah. felt it. Yes. And I think what, what, what that, what that makes us do is we want to do perfection right away. And I think the, the, in order to get new things into the world, you have to go through the valley of bad <laughs> you know, like, there, yeah. is, there is no other pathway to the mountain top of, of beauty uh, yeah. you have to go through that valley and uh and so the faster you can go through it the, the better
0: so combining that idea of of having to ideate and, and certainly with collaboration um how do you encourage candor and trust amongst, like, for example, your colleagues at the Massive Change Network? And, and how do you keep it from being, how do you keep it being critical instead of cynical?
2: That's a great question. Um, you know, first of all, I have an allergy to cynicism. So, uh, you know, I, I kill it <laughs> if I see it. Um, I, I really cannot tolerate it. I, I think, um, you know, if you want to be cynical, uh, you're not a designer. Do something else Um, and there's a place in the world for cynicism you know there's a there's a place in the ecosystem of change uh for people who are are um stone throwers and you know like who basically um mostly call attention to problems but don't actually contemplate solving them Um, and so um but for designers we are responsible for solutions so my job is to be optimistic And I have to, I have to think about, you know, I have to think optimistically in order to produce that. So there's no real room for, um, for, for cynicism. We have to think, uh, you know, we have to think about what's possible. And my, my role is to inspire, you know, I, and, and we don't, we don't take that lightly or, uh, expect that it will happen by chance. We really say, look, your job as a designer, as an architect, as an urban planner, your job is to inspire change. You can't force people to do it. You can't, you know, we don't have a stick big enough to to make them do things. The only way we get to a new way of life is by inspiration. And so our, our responsibility is to inspire.
0: I love that.
1: Bruce, let's talk about another one of the principles. So the one I want to uh, point out right now, is always search for the worst. So this allows us to engage with the problems that will lead to the greatest upside, which there's value in this, right? Yeah. So there's obvious value in identifying what these specific problems are. So without giving away uh, a secret here, <laughs> could you give us some tips on how to best find those needles in a haystack? So what, what are the characteristics? What are you looking for?
2: Um, Well, the whole purpose of the book is to give away secrets, actually. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm happy to do it. Um, Now, what we realized was that uh, we're in a time uh, facing the biggest challenges in human history. So the challenges that we will face over this century are like nothing else we, you know, it's like nothing we've ever faced. Um, You know, there have been some dark times in our history, but uh, what we are going to have to deal with in the next hundred years uh, is really the worst challenges and and crisis that have happened to humankind. Uh, That, it turns out, is also the biggest business opportunity in human history. And so the idea that we can actually find the biggest impact at the most critical, difficult moment, I think is, uh, is a really important idea that if you look at the, our biggest challenges, that's where the biggest opportunities are for contribution, right? I mean, um, and what we see, you know, there's a great book by, by a man named C.K. Prahalad uh, called The Fortune at the Bottom of the Pyramid. Um, and I, t- you know, I talk about it in the book, and, and basically what he saw was that almost all design and consulting and all the kind of services of advanced uh, design are crowded around the top billion people. So we're almost all of us working for the top billion. Uh, the, you know, the seven billion below that are, have almost no, no uh, access to design. And there's a huge opportunity to bring the design power to the challenges that those seven billion face. And when you do, typically, and this is his thesis, you revolutionize the top because solving the problems at the bottom are so much more complex and difficult that you really have to truly innovate. And when you do that, you often create huge amounts of wealth and most importantly, huge social impact and and life impact
0: when we worked together on the freeman headquarters design you frequently mentioned the concept of the live experience and it drove the layout of the um, experience innovation center along with the ideas of of constantly having a dynamic space with interactive elements and whatnot and and then we hit covid (laughs) and in a new covid world with this disappointing experience gap with virtual interactions and everything from zoom meetings to to some things that are actually pretty cool, like being able to do a, a forum live. Um, what are some insights or, or clues that you have um, for how we capitalize on both sides of that spectrum?
2: Um, I think one of the principles is design for all the senses. And if you think about our design tools, almost all the tools, as I mentioned, are exclusively for the eyeball. So we think of design as an, as an eyeball product. When in fact our experience is uh, a sensory a sensory experience, uh, our interface with the world uh, is our senses, and those senses produce a, a much higher uh, resolution experience than strictly what we see. Um, and they produce they produce memories and and kind of brain impact um, that can be much deeper much more long-term um, and and mostly we don't really design for that. We don't take advantage of it. I mean, you know, I saw when I first started with working with Freeman, you know, I went to shows where, you know, you've got these incredible people like, you know, 100,000 of the smartest people you've ever imagined in a room together and yeah. we're feeding them bad pizza. And they're, <laughs> and, they're, and they're sitting on the floor to plug in their phone. I mean, it's just... Like, it's just crazy to me. And uh, and what we realized was that uh, there's a new medium emerging, which is the synthesis of physical and digital. And that's really what we're working on at Freeman, which is to say, um, if, you know, live experience is actually not going to be, you know, either live or digital. Uh, the future of live really is synthesis. It's really... You know, it's it's that partnership with AI that I talked about earlier. It's really a synthesis of the best that technology and the reach that we can have with with technology, uh, and the depth of experience we can have when we are together. Uh, and I think that new world is a is just the most exciting new world you could imagine. And you know, obviously, it's a tragic pause in the development of that. Uh, but you know, I have no doubt that we will, you know, we'll come back to, uh, to doing that, uh, you know, to to kind of getting getting to the real possibilities of that new world.
0: All right. Well, then let's go ahead and take some questions. There are a ton here, so we'll <laughs> get through as many as we can. You've you've definitely inspired some pretty cool questions. Um, so the first one is from uh, Chuck Armstrong. Is 20th century capitalism obsolete as measured in social terms? Has it failed?
2: I don't think it has failed per se. I don't think it's obsolete per se. Um, I mean, uh, certainly on, in one, from one perspective, it, it is obsolete and it has failed. Um, but I think that what we saw when we did Massive Change 15 years ago, and we looked at um, 10 different design economies, you know, the, the, the experience of your life that's being uh, designed or redesigned, what we saw was that there was innovation on the market side and there was innovation on the social side mm-hmm. and it was almost like there was a new political axis of developing that was not left or right it's not the kind of you know market versus versus social institution it was actually uh turning 90 degrees to that to create an axis that was advanced and retrograde and what we saw was really advanced, brilliant work on the, in the, on the market, you know, people using market mechanisms to solve problems like the Aravind Eye Institute in India, that, that basically reconceived the economy of eye surgery, of eye care, um, and, and did a, made a brilliant new model where I think 60 to 70% of their patients get the treatment for free. And, wow. and 30% pay and subsidize the, the 70%. And so they've used a market mechanism to deliver the service at, you know, in a social way. And we see similarly, there are social innovators, people who are on the social side, um, you know, Doctors Without Borders, who are really thinking about how can we innovate the delivery of services uh, around the world to, you know, for people in crisis. Uh, where there is no market for that service, it's got to be done as a social institution. So I don't think it's one or the other. I think that we're moving to a higher order of complexity and demanding more of our of our uh, economic systems.
1: That's great, Bruce. Can we switch from the economy to a different institution? So let's talk about education here. So a question came in from Joel. So how should architectural education change? To make it more relevant or effective for the future.
2: Um, great, another great question. Um, I am on the board of a school in northern Canada called the McEwen School of Architecture. It's the first new architecture school in Canada in 40 years, and it's a tri-cultural project with French, English, and Indigenous leaders. And so I've been going up there twice a year to work, you know, with these folks, and I discover a, a mind-blowing new cosmology that is new for me. I mean, obviously not. Uh, for our indigenous folks. Um, But what the difference is from what I've, you know, how I've grown up is they put life at the center, not humans. And when you make that one change, it fundamentally changes everything. So one of the projects that they do that I think is, I mean, when I, when they told me I was just blown away, one of the projects they do is the students work with an elder. An indigenous elder they go into the forest they find a birch tree that is ready to give up its bark um, which is how they describe it and they basically make one cut and the birch tree pops the bark just pops off almost as one piece and they proceed to make a, a birch bark canoe in the way that it was made you know thousands of years ago and you think about making a canoe as part of your architectural learning where every piece of that canoe, when it's finished, goes back to the earth, right? And the material that they use to seal the the kind of joints in the birch bark, is made of bear fat, spruce gum, and ash from the fire. Yeah. and that wow. material will survive you know hundred degree summers, minus forty winters, and not crack or peel. I mean, it's a kind of you know incredible innovation, and uh that is is putting life at the center it's not it's not a human center design it's life center design and i think that is such a radical change in educational thinking that you know it's going to i mean that's where we need to go uh and it it really challenges what we currently do
0: so the next question is from nikki markham do you think that architects have begun to limit themselves by only solving for what their current role requires Rather than taking ownership of those externalities that used to be addressed by the master builder, and should we be taking on more roles and be less specialized? Yes. (laughs) answer. (laughs) that's a good one. Uh,
2: Absolutely, I think if you go back to the to the kind of first uh, principles of architecture, the you know the the origins of the culture of architecture. Uh, It wasn't about buildings. It was about how to live. And I think we desperately need the culture of architecture to help us understand how to live. Not just what the building looks like, but really how do we live? You know, how do we live in a way that is, uh, you know, a synthesis with the natural world? How do we live in an ecology and sustain that ecology that sustains us? Um, and that means that the kind of contractual frame of the architecture has to be abandoned in order to, to take a role that is much more um, central to our future. And, you know, I, I once said that, that architecture has been so busy policing the fence to make sure no one got in yeah.
1: Yeah. that they
2: forgot to leave a door so they could get out. Yeah. Um, and I think architecture should be in uh, policy. It should be in healthcare. It should be in, you know, and not only in, in building hospitals, but really thinking about what is the future of a healthcare experience? You know, what should that, what should that be like in a way that we can do it at scale, make a thing that is truly beautiful and that is uh, sustainable in the long-term because we, we just are not, we're just not you know, attaining that kind of complexity yet.
1: Mm-hmm. Next question, this is from Bree Wonderly. So what are your thoughts on designers that have found a solution that works so they keep using the same design solution for every project? Is it okay to stick with what you know or should every project be truly unique? <coughs>
2: Uh, it's a, another great question. Uh, you know, it's funny because when I was first working at Freeman, I discovered uh, that they have a, a same as last year button. Right, yeah. So that you can actually just <laughs> press that button year. and the show happens the same as last year. And, I, <laughs> and I, was, I was mortified. I thought, oh my goodness, how can we have this button? And, yeah. um, but I realized over time, actually the button's really brilliant what you want to do is be very careful what you attach it to. Mm -hmm. So, um, if you can do, you know, 70% of the project and press the same as last year button, and it's smart and easy and, you know, and it's, it's kind of takes all kinds of pressure out and delivers the project cost effectively and all those things. Terrific. What you want to be sure is that you're focusing on the things that really make the difference. And if and if you're if you're innovating every single thing, you're spreading that innovation far too thin, and you'll yeah. end up with right. mediocre. So yeah. so the same as last year, button it turns out is really helpful.
0: <laughs> so the next question is from Michael Janik Are accepting fail, uh, accepting to fail is taking risk? So this is back to that same principle we were talking about earlier. Have you found our design culture is no longer willing to take a risk and grow creatively?
2: Well, I think uh, yeah, that's another good uh, I think um, um, not taking risks is the biggest risk of all. Yeah. Um, and so um, what we want to do is actually integrate risk. Because when you hold it outside, um, you falsely believe that you solved it. Um, when in fact, the reality is that that thing that you held outside can come back and bite you in a way that you, you can't imagine. And so th- the best approach to that, um, that level of risk is to integrate small risk cheaply and quickly so that you can explore those things and make sure that you've got a, a solution that actually is a solution and has a long-term uh, viability. Uh, Because I think that not doing that uh, really puts the whole enterprise at risk. And there's some great examples. I mean, if you look at the airbag, you know, the airbag, they basically didn't test it uh, sufficiently. They didn't didn't go through what they should have done in a prototyping testing methodology of sketching and and producing that, you know, over and really going through rigorously what the long-term impact was going to be. And in fact, it was absolutely
1: disastrous. So uh, so, uh, Bruce, do you remember that curiosity report that you read uh, when we first uh, got this idea for the interview hatched? So this is from Samantha Flores and she's the director of Hugo. So she asks, as many industries emerge out of this pandemic recession and possible, or excuse me, let me start over as many industries emerge out of this pandemic recession and potentially transform. What are you most curious about? Do you see any new industries or habits developing that might be wholly transformative to the way we design and most importantly, experience design?
2: Okay. So another great question. And I want to just take a moment to say how blown away I was by that curiosity report. I mean, amazing, amazing work. Uh, You know, I mean, to think about sort of constantly contextualizing the world around us so we understand where we, you know, where we can contribute uh, is really the practice, you know, that I've been working on for, you know, 30 years. Um, So the question then is, um, are things emerging that could, you know, really transform things? Um, I think one of the great gifts of the pandemic, and there are a few, uh, is to stop things and allow us to see that we can stop things. You know, we, we just stopped and suddenly you can see fish in the Venice Canal and you can see the mountains from cities that didn't realize they were there and, you know, those kinds of things. So um, it, it allowed us to actually imagine that we can change things and to really think about, you know, why are we doing it this way? And I think that is going to have, I mean, I mean that is, the more, the more uh, impact that can have, the better, the more profound that experience, the better. Uh, and I think if we can hold on to it, you know, really hold on to that realization and that kind of insight that, that we can change things, that we don't have to do. I mean, many things s- stopped. If you had told me two years ago, you know, mm. we're just gonna turn that off. And I would have said, not <laughs> possible. No way. Uh, yeah. And in fact, <laughs> We did and you know, I haven't been to the airport in like five months, six months. And, um, and I'm working and I'm, you know, producing, if anything, producing more than I did uh, before. Um, and so you realize that we can change things. And I think, um, this experience being able to actually use this communication technology, I mean, you know, I, I work with, you know, I have teams all over the world. You know, I've worked with I've worked that way for years, but I have to say that, that almost every meeting started with 10 minutes of, you know, can you see my screen? It's, yes, <laughs> but it's all black. You know, and it's like, now people actually learned how to use it. Yeah,
1: right?
2: they, they, they learned how to use it. And so I think that, that we are going to change things uh, in surprising ways that have yet to be seen.
0: All it took was a global pandemic to yeah. learn how to use Zoom. Uh-huh. So this one's from Justin Dauhauer, and I and I love this question. What are your thoughts on how we should approach clients who choose not to address the negative impacts that our designs can have on the world, whether it's social or economical or environmental? And how do we reconcile design perfection versus client pressures?
2: I would say look for other clients because you're going to need them. Those clients are not going to be around that long. Um, if, if you're unaware of the impact you're having, uh, or willingly and kind of, uh, aggressively, um, you know, blind to it, um, you're, you're not going to survive very long. I mean, the, the reality of our world is that people are waking up to these challenges and to the problems that we have. And if you're not part of the solution you're part of the problem and that's not a good brand. You know, it's a, hard, right. it's a hard brand to sustain. Right.
1: Next question, Bruce, is from Violet Lee and she asks, with the rapid evolution of technology and infrastructure, buildings are more permanent and therefore outlive the user group and program that they were designed for. So how can architects take into account these uncertainties and accommodate the changing future?
2: Uh, it's a great, another great question. Um, one of the principles is design the platform for constant design. So mostly we think about our solution as the solution. So we do the thing where are absolutely certain we got it right. Um, yeah. you know, and I've been in a lot of rooms where the people in the room are basically saying, you know, we're much smarter than the last guys. <laughs> like they, 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 weren't, they weren't that bright. But I've also been in rooms where we're redesigning something that I designed. And it's pretty hard to say <laughs> <that> <laughs> those guys weren't that bright. Uh, and you realize that, in fact, what we need to be doing is thinking about our work as a platform and integrating the evolution of that, of that work into the design itself. So that even if our client doesn't really you know, demand or articulate that, Uh, helping them to see that the more that 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 building is conceived as a platform, the more long-term value it has, Uh, the more, you know, multiple lives it can sustain.
0: All right, so John Mayers asks, does your human desire to solve problems um, cause unintended consequences due to an inherent hero bias? I've seen so many solutions where obvious errors are overlooked because they don't fit and, con- and conventionally into boxes.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think it was it was Mies who said I would be less successful if I solved more problems. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a, a very careful formulation. Um, yeah, I think that we have to get past that. Uh, you know, we need to think about the, the kind of um, conflicts and and um and really think of it as a collective design you know like you think about um and i think architecture has a kind of suffers from this more than more than a lot of practices where it's a kind of master builder concept is still very you know it's, it's still very prominent um where, whereas i think um you know wicked teams are are more and more necessary you think about the 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 bodies of knowledge today are so great that it's 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 almost impossible to master more than one and many many so vast that even the mastering one is uh is very difficult and so uh if we're going to solve these kinds of complex challenges we're going to need to do it collaboratively and we're and that's where i think the architectural practice overall is very valuable where we can bring together people bring people into a kind of collaborative space and solve problems that that uh, are not possible to solve any other way
1: so rick ryan comes in with with the ability to automate elements of our design process where do you think is the best place to refocus our efforts to add the most value to our projects
2: Uh, that's a great question imagination culture uh, value experience you know we cannot automate a, a human feeling um, we can automate um, ways of exploring variations on all kinds of things. I mean, there's, there's brilliant uses of the technology. You can't automate the the kind of human touch and human feeling and really the, the kind of um, the experiential dimension of the work. Um, that's where, you know, only really the kind of knowledge and culture and, uh, and beauty of the person, you know, the, the kind of cultural leader can really uh, do the work.
0: Alright, last two questions, and they both are kind of in the area of senses. So, Yuri Rapp asked, you spoke about the experience of space as sensory. In your opinion, which sense other than sight is the most critical to design?
2: Well, I think that, um, I mean, in my you know, what we're trying to develop as a practice is to say, um, you need a five senses and, and more frankly, um, uh, kind of awareness. Um, and so the answer to that question is going to change, you know, depending on what you're doing in some cases, sound is going to, is going to override practically everything else. Uh, in many cases, smell is such an important uh, dimension of the experience that that we mostly leave to chance. I mean, um, you know, like we, we just don't even think about it. Um, whereas, you know, if you think about, I, you know, I have a favorite hotel in London and that place, the moment that I walk into it, I feel like I'm home because it smells <laughs> a certain way. And, and I actually, you know, I called them and said, look, you got to tell me what this is. And they said, great, <laughs> we'll send you the formula that we designed it. We designed it. We'll send you the formula, you know. And it's like, uh, of course, you can't make it if you if you have the formula, uh, but uh, <laughs> but it is it is very very distinctive. And um, you know, we in our research we discovered that smells uh, are are much more precise, right? We can smell we can smell we can sense many many more smells than uh, than we than colors we can see. Um, uh, and they live in the brain for a much longer time, right? You can, you can smell, you know, your aunt's house, uh, decades after she's passed away, um, mm. and, and, and immediately, you know, smell that, uh, particular kind of, uh, and, and go back in your mind to that experience. Um, and so I think that the, the answer is really, uh, very much, um, dependent on the context and the particulars of that situation. And I know with
1: the- that answer in mind. I'm thinking about every corgonite imagining wait, when did we ever talk about smell in architecture yeah. school? When was that ever a part of a crit ever brought up by a professor and then ever really thought about much in the professional realm. So with that lack of uh, information, there's obvious opportunity for us and others to kind of carry that forward.
0: And I know that somewhere Sam is going nuts because I know they're working on uh, olfactory design as we speak. Yeah. All right, last question. All right, last question here. So this
1: one comes in from George Collar. He asks, alongside designing for the senses, do you also consider our basic human needs when designing architectural projects?
2: Absolutely. We need to think... Um, you know, we need to think in context, like we need to think about, um, the reality of our world. And I think, you know, if you think about what's happening right now with racial equity, right, with the kind of, uh, movement to, to fairness and equity in our world, um, you know, people are, are forcing the issue to say, please think about it more holistically think about what we're doing in context because we've just pushed things out of the way and you know as i said we we imagined a discrete entity and that discrete thing is not reality <laughs> like that's just not true yeah. Yeah. Uh, the reality is that those people around the world are suffering and uh, and we have to think about you know what role we play in either mitigating or extending that suffering. Well,
0: that's a great place to leave it. Yeah, Bruce, thank you so much for doing this with us, and I appreciate you sticking along even longer than than you were supposed to and answering these questions. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank all of the Korgonites for some incredible questions, and yeah. Corey, thank you, Bud. Yeah, appreciate thank it. You. <laughs> thank you all for joining us, and we'll see you next time.